Good afternoon. I hope, uh, I hope everyone's had a good day. People enjoy today, had a good day on campus. Great. Well, thanks so much again for, uh, for being here. We love the fact that you're here. I'm Evan Smith. I'm the CEO and co-founder of the Texas Tribune, and I'm pleased to introduce our next keynote session, a wide-ranging conversation with United States Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas and Donald Trump supporter. <laughs> I assure you, those were the last three words I expected to be saying today. Unless you were asleep for the last year plus, you know that Mr. Cruz was a leading candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 2016, winning 10 states and finishing second in pledge delegates to Mr. Trump. At the Republican National Committee in Cleveland, he famously declined to endorse his party's nominee, but yesterday he reversed course. It's widely assumed that if Mr. Trump loses, Senator Cruz may run for president again in 2020. You can clap if you want. Senator Cruz, who was raised in Houston, has an undergraduate degree from Princeton University. After graduating from Harvard Law School, he clerked for Chief Justice William Rehnquist of the U.S. Supreme Court and worked at both the Federal Trade Commission and the U.S. Department of Justice during George W. Bush's presidential administration. In 2003, Attorney General Greg Abbott appointed him the Solicitor General of Texas, a post he held for five years, longer than anyone in the state's history. In 2012, he ran successfully to succeed Kay Bailey Hutchison in the U.S. Senate. He's announced his intention to run again in 2018. Senator Cruz has been on the program at three of our five previous Tribune festivals. We're grateful that he came back for a fourth. If only we could have attracted a bigger crowd. Please join me in welcoming the Honorable Ted Cruz. Thank you, sir. Good to see you. Please. Good afternoon, Senator. Thank you, Evan. Good to be back. How are you? What happened to vote your conscience? Well, it's a good question, and it's still what I would urge everyone to do. Look, I think in every election, each of us has to assess the candidates and, and assess the candidates who's going to defend freedom, who's going to defend the Constitution. Right. And, you know, yesterday I wrote a long op-ed. You did. Laying out the reasons for announcing that in November I'm going to vote for Donald. Now, as you know, this was not a decision I reached easily. I do know that. Um, these last several months have been uh, like a lot of voters. This election is not a typical election. I feel confident I'm not the only voter here, I'm not the only voter in the state or in the country who is agonized about what's the right thing to do in this election. Yes. And what I laid out yesterday was really two things that led me to decide that I'm gonna vote for Donald. Number one, I gave my word. A year ago, I stood on a debate stage, I raised my hand, and I said, I will support the Republican nominee, whoever it is. Yep. And when I searched my conscience, what's the right thing to do? At the end of the day, I was left with the answer, you've got to keep your word. But then secondly, listen, I have had more than a few disagreements with Donald. I haven't been shy about those. You haven't. We'll get to that. But... At the end of the day, I think this election gives us effectively a binary choice. One of two people is going to be the next president, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. 
Yeah. And as many disagreements as I've had with Donald, right. in my view, by any measure, Hillary Clinton is manifestly unfit to be president. Do you, um, just, just since, just since you, uh, amazing in Austin, there's disagreements. Right. Just, just since you brought it up and since uh, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates felt it necessary to unburden himself in the pages of the Wall Street Journal last weekend, do you consider Donald Trump to be fit to be president? I think we have one of two choices. That's not the question, <laughs> sir, sir. That's not the question I asked you, though. You know, Evan, I think it is fair to say that there is not another candidate in the field who tried harder, who left more on the field yep. in an effort to defeat Donald than I did. We didn't succeed. Yep. And at the end of the day, I have to respect the democratic process. And right, the democratic you, process has given us effectively a binary choice. Right, but you could say the words, he is fit to be president if you chose to. <laughs> right? You're doing such a fine job saying that. Oh, I'm, I have no point of view, Senator. <laughs> the point of view we want is yours. Um, so let me take you at your word that the catalyst for your decision was, yep. number one, your pledge of a year ago, mm -hmm. and number two, the fact that Hillary Clinton is the alternative. Senator, two months ago at the convention, when you famously declined to endorse mm -hmm. Donald Trump, you knew you had pledged to support the nominee, yep. and you knew she would be the nominee. Effectively, nothing is different from two months ago. Well, uh, you know, with all respect, I disagree with that. Yeah. Uh, if you look at what I said in Cleveland, I, I will say one of the unfortunate things about the perception of Cleveland afterwards is I think a lot of folks saw me as the face of never Trump. I have never been never Trump. I have never said I would never support Donald Trump. I have been never Hillary. I've said that from the beginning right. that under no circumstances would I support Donald Trump. Yep. What I was attempting to do at Cleveland yep. was lay out a vision. This is how we unite Republicans. This is how we come together and win. And in my view, this shouldn't be a personality contest. This shouldn't just be a, a, a battle of celebrities. This should be about substance. And what I tried to lay out in Cleveland is that for us to win, we need to unite behind shared principles, in particular, defending freedom yep. and defending the Constitution. You know, for me, I, I mean, the Constitution has been my passion since I was a kid. And I... In Cleveland, I was laying out, essentially to Donald, this is what you have to do to earn my vote, and I believe to earn the votes of millions of other conservatives. And you think he did it? Well, I'll tell you, there was a very important development this week, which is that yesterday, the Trump campaign rolled out a list, an expanded list of Supreme Court nominees. Right. Had my friend, Senator Mike Lee, number one on the list that they rolled right. out yesterday. And I got to tell you, Mike would make an extraordinary right. justice. But you've been given no representations by the Trump campaign or by Mr. Trump himself that Mike Lee would be his choice. I, I have not, but what he said yesterday that was very important is for the first time the campaign committed yeah. that the only justices Trump would consider were the names on Tw that list. 21 names on right. the list. And right. previously, he'd put out a list previously. Right. But the campaign previously had said these were among the people they'd consider. There was nothing binding in the commitment. He's committed now to 21. Yesterday's right. commitment meant a lot. In, in part, look, most of my professional life has been defending the Constitution and Bill of Rights in front of the Supreme Court. Right. And the Supreme Court is hanging in the balance just, just about every one of our fundamental rights, whether it's the Second Amendment or re religious liberty or free speech. 
decision after decision after decision has been 5-4. Antonin right. Scalia has been among those five. And the next president's going to decide which direction to go. What I'm certain of is that if Hillary Clinton were president, she would appoint left-wing ideologues. The commitment Trump made yesterday that right. he would remain within those 21 names, it's a very strong list. And from the perspective of someone who cares about defending the Constitution and Bill of Rights, right. that is a very meaningful difference. In your experience running in this campaign, when Donald Trump has been in the commitment and binding business, how has that worked out? <laughs> Well, you put your finger on one of the reasons this has been such an agonizing decision. You're taking his word for it. No, no, I'm not. What I said yesterday, and, and I would encourage folks, if you want to know why I made my decision, I'd encourage you to read what I wrote yesterday. Right, it's because on it Facebook. Was something, it's it's on Facebook. It's, we emailed it out. It's in we, medium, widely disseminated. It, it, is, it ain't hard to find. Right. Um, I laid out six different policy areas. The Supreme Court... Obamacare, energy, immigration, national security, and internet freedom. Right. On all six, what Hillary Clinton says she would do, I believe is terrible policy. I believe would hurt this country, yep. would hurt millions of Americans. And she's telling us this is what she's going to do. Yep. And what Donald says he's going to do, I believe would make much, much better policy. But hadn't he said the same things, leaving internet freedom, which was not an issue at mm -hmm. the time aside, and the appearance of your friend, Senator Lee, who, to my knowledge, by the way, has not himself endorsed That's correct. Donald Trump. So it's Mike Lee and Internet freedom, because the other four issue areas, Donald Trump's positions have been effectively what they've been for a couple months. Well, right? it, it's more than just Mike Lee. It's the commitment, the commitment. to stick to those 21 names. So that, you're, that is meaningful to me. Meaningful that to that, that right. was a major... Right. And I'll tell you, that's something I had raised with the Trump campaign when Mike Pence and I sat down in D.C. a couple of weeks ago. Right. You raised it with Mr. Pence. I, I raised it very directly with Mike. I, and the, the question they asked was, you know, what, what, would, what are you looking for? What would it take? And, and I had been saying over and over again exactly what I said in Cleveland. Yep. Which is a commitment to defend freedom in the Constitution. And putting out 21 principled conservatives and saying, these will be my Supreme Court justices. Yep. And making that as a public promise. Right. That, to me, was a meaningful change that... that made it much easier to make the decision. Uh, Senator Cruz, I, I spent a little time yesterday dragging the net along the bottom of the Internet Archive Ocean. <laughs> and I just took a sampling of some of the things that you said about Mr. Trump during this campaign. Somehow I imagined that you would. And I'm going to do a dramatic reading of those things. Um, here are some of the things, some, five minutes work that you said about Mr. Trump. Utterly amoral a sniveling coward, a pathological liar, a serial philanderer, a bully, a narcissist at a level that I don't think this country's ever seen, and someone who engaged in consistently disgraceful behavior beneath the office we're seeking. So, Senator, I, I and we are left to conclude one of two things. Either you said those things during the heat of a campaign and you didn't mean them, or you did mean them, and I know you to mean the things you say, or you did mean them and somehow you're looking past that and you think a serial philanderer who's utterly amoral and a pathological liar should be president. <laughs> so which is it? As you and I discussed, yes. I have had 
many, many disagreements with Donald. Yeah. Some of which you've cataloged. And I have not been at all reluctant to articulate exactly what they were to vigorously make the case in the primary. Right. Why I believed that I should be the nominee instead of him. We enjoyed tremendous success. We had a field of 17 candidates. Of the 17 GOP candidates, we beat 15 of them. You finished second, that's right. But we didn't beat 16. Right. And at the end of the day, he won the primaries. But is that characterization, are those characterizations of him accurate? What I'm going to tell you is this. <laughs> We're in a general election now. Yeah. I don't think it is productive for me to criticize the Republican nominee today. So you can ask me to, but I'm going to decline to do so. Um, I have made my concerns with him very clear. Right. And right now the voters are faced with a binary choice. As I look at Hillary Clinton, if she is president, the Second Amendment, the individual right to keep and bear arms, Heller versus District of Columbia, which is a case I helped litigate here in Texas, held 5-4 that we have an individual right to keep and bear arms. If Hillary Clinton is president, the Supreme Court will reverse that decision and conclude no American has an individual right to keep and bear arms. You're assuming that she gets to make an appointment that will tip the balance against that case. Well, I know that for a fact. Justice Scalia has passed away. We have, we have opening, a vacancy. Right. That will happen well, soon. Well, you can always uh, approve Merrick Garland, uh, right? And if Merrick Garland were confirmed to the court, the Second Amendment right to you keep and bear arms would. would go away. And by the way, he has voted on the D.C. Circuit in those cases, in that direction so to begin with. Fact, yeah. Religious liberty. Yep. Religious liberty. You know, the Ten Commandments case, just a few blocks from here, the Ten Commandments monument on the state capitol grounds. Right. I helped litigate that. Right. We won 5-4 in front of the Supreme Court to preserve that monument. If Hillary is elected president... That decision, I believe, will be overturned, and that monument and monuments all over the country like it will be torn down. So will veterans' memorials like the Mojave Desert Veterans Memorial that is a lone white Latin cross. That was another case I litigated that we won 5-4. Right. So it's a, it, it is the Supreme Court that is really driving this decision. The Supreme Court is front and center. Right. But the other six issues I raised are real. Listen, this is yeah. Texas. Right. Energy matters in Texas. It does. We've seen for eight years Obama waging a war against coal, doing everything he can to strangle the oil and gas industry. You know, I've spent a lot of time in the past months talking to friends of mine out in Midland who are terrified of what Hillary Clinton administration would do to energy, to try to crush energy. I think that is profoundly harmful. And right. what Donald has said on the campaign trail is he intends to pull back those regulations and allow the American energy renaissance that is growing to fully blossom. Yep. Those are policies that, if followed, would produce millions of high-paying jobs. I think that's in the interest of right. Texas. Uh, last night, Senator, you were in Tyler at mm -hmm. Joanne Fleming's uh, Tea Party group. You spoke to that group. And actually, after that, you spoke to the Tribune's Patrick Svitek. Yep. And you revealed last night that you and your wife, Heidi, mm -hmm. and your father had made a decision to forgive Donald Trump. This is the other part of this that I'm having a hard time, and I think probably other people are having a hard time understanding. As recently as July 20th of this year, you said, I'm not in the habit of supporting people who attack my wife and father. He brought your wife's, he questioned your wife's uh, physical appearance. He accused your father of being associated with the Kennedy assassination. He called your citizenship and your eligibility to be president into question. You have decided to forgive him for those things. 
Yes. And, and, and listen, I, I told you this has been something right. I've struggled with. Right. I can tell you both Heidi and my dad, they are strong, independent people. When those attacks came, both of them laughed out loud. They found them utterly ridiculous. Uh, but nonetheless... You seem pretty mad. Uh, that is fair to say. Yeah. Um, I... That morning in Indiana, when he accused your father of being associated with the Kennedy assassination, you looked like your head was going to blow off your neck. Uh, it, uh, look, my dad has been my hero my whole life. He graduated class of 61 here at UT. He right. came to America with nothing. Um, I was not happy. Right. Listen, as the old saying goes, politics ain't beanbag. You know, you want to attack me, the candidate. I signed up for this. When I run right. for office, part of it is people are going to attack you. Newspapers are going to say mean things about you. That's just the back and forth of politics. Right. I think going after someone's family is different. I wasn't happy. But I'll tell you, Heidi and my dad and I, we talked about it, and we made a decision together yep. that we are going to choose to forgive him. Did you forgive him because he's apologized, or did you forgive him without an apology? Has he apologized? He has not. Privately or publicly? Yeah, not he, even he one of those birther-like apologies. The National Enquirer started it and I finished it. There was nothing like uh, that, actually. He has not apologized. And... Have you talked to him, by the way? Yes. You've been on the telephone with yeah, him in I, the last 24 I, hours? I talked with him yesterday. You did? Talked with both, both Donald and Mike Pence, both yesterday. And he was gracious? Hey, he was very gracious. He, yeah. he said, thank you for the support. But I said, he You're has welcome. not apologized to you for anything that preceded the decision, and that was not a condition. It, it, it was not, and it was interesting. I was talking with someone last night who asked me, said, why didn't you demand, as a condition of your support, an apology? And the answer, I was on the phone last night, and I said, you know, because at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about my family. It's about the country. When I sat down with Mike Pence, when I talked with the campaign, I said, if you want my support, what do I care about? I care about the Supreme Court. I care about the Bill of Rights. I care about the rights for my kids and my grandkids. Yep. And so my ask was not a personal ask of apologize to my family, but it was give a commitment that matters to me, and I think matters to a lot of conservatives, a lot of Americans, give a commitment on something meaningful on the Supreme Court. Yep. And... You know, on the question of an apology, listen, faith is something that each of us has to struggle to find and follow according to our own path. But, but my faith at least teaches to forgive yep. with or without an apology. You know, the Lord's Prayer says, uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And that's true whether they ask for an apology or not. And so, we made a decision, we're going to forgive, we're going to move on right. and put the past behind us. And my focus, I mean, we're two months away from a general election, yep. where I am fearful for our nation. I, I think we have had seven long years of policies that are hurting Americans, and I want to see us change direction. And, and I, I'm committed to doing everything I can to get us back to right. a path that respects the Constitution, that respects the Bill of Rights, that gets government off the backs of small businesses and lets, lets us create more jobs. Yeah. Before we move on to talking about issues, which I do want to do, I mean, obviously, I'm going to talk about this Trump thing until we're no longer able to talk about it, but we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll move on. Earlier this week, three things happened. Uh, Rents Priebus on the Sunday shows uh, 
effectively threatened anybody not on the Trump train. Uh, John Weaver, John Kasich's political operative, referred to him famously as a, a, a Kenosha political operative. Rance Priebus, Kenosha political operative. Putting the, the muscle on you guys saying, get on a train or we're going to somehow prevent you from, the implied thing was prevent you from running president. Uh, Dan Patrick made a comment that he and his people insist was not a threat, but nonetheless he talked about you being in the rearview mirror if you did not get on the Trump train. And then Congressman Michael McCall, you know him, you know who he is, right? Congressman Michael McCall, heard uh, you've heard of him, Con who, who is talked about possibly as a challenger to you for the United States Senate in the Republican primary in 2018, also, also uh, 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 talked about how basically you had not kept your word. They all put down their markers. There are people who will inevitably say that this is simply you caving. You caving to Reince Priebus, you caving to Dan Patrick, and you so concerned about a Mike McCall challenge that you endorse Trump rather than stand by your principles. What about that? Well, look, in politics, people throw rocks at you. Yep. Any path we took, if I supported Donald, if I didn't support Donald, the criticism was going to be, it's political and it's self-serving. That's the attack that gets thrown. Doesn't matter what you do. Right. Whichever path we took, the criticism would be identical. Right. I can tell you from my end, I'm a pretty simple guy. I believe passionately in the Constitution and the American free enterprise system. It's what I've spent my whole life fighting for. The way you get my support on legislation in the Senate is you make, make the case this is principled and in the best interest of the country. I'll tell you whose voices really moved me in the last couple of months. Was I heard from a great many grassroots supporters across the state. Republican women, Tea Party activists, people who are good, principled, honorable patriots who were, who were tearfully begging me to support the nominee. Because they supported him or because they opposed her? The latter. The latter. No, no, these were people who were with us, who worked, who knocked on doors, who, who trudged through the snow, who made phone calls. And there, there is snow in Iowa. Um, and their view, they're horrified by Hillary Clinton presidency. And, and I don't, listen, if, if people from Washington are smacking me with a stick, yep. that doesn't bother me. To be honest, it actually tells me I might be doing something right. But I'll tell you, when you hear the voices of the grassroots of activists who believe in all their heart in the yep. principles I believe in, yep. those voices have moved me. And I have spent a lot of time traveling the state, listening to people, just hearing them. Yep. And the arguments they raised yep. had real force. And, and what I said before Cleveland, at Cleveland, after Cleveland, as I was listening, I was watching, and I wanted to make a decision to support the candidate who would we could best trust to defend freedom in the Constitution. Between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton has told us she will be disastrous in that regard. Right. And at the end of the day, that, that leaves me at least with no choice other than to vote for Donald. But you know, uh, Senator, that it is not even in the grassroots among the Tea Party a unanimous view that this is a good decision for you. That's true. A, a, again, a quick survey of Twitter, yeah. not the best sample, but a sample, there are a number of people who are diehard Cruz supporters who feel like you've betrayed them. Uh, 
and they think you've damaged your brand as a principled conservative, and that ultimately, whatever this does for you and for the country in the short term, it ultimately hurts you in 2018 and hurts you in 2020. What about that? Uh, look, you are right. There are people who are dismayed. And, and one of the aspects that made this, this decision one that I agonized with is whatever path I went down, there were going to be people who were dismayed. Right. Uh, th th there was no option that wouldn't result in people being deeply, deeply unhappy. And, you know, I'll tell you on Twitter, look, I'm on my iPhone every day on Twitter reading. I read every bad thing said about me. Uh, my, you know, Heidi thinks it's absolutely masochistic, Glutton but I read it all. Right. I'll tell you the post on Facebook, reading through the comments on Facebook, which I have spent a lot of time doing, the anguish on both sides. There are people, good, honorable people, who, right. are, who, who are weeping at the decision. There are other people who are celebrating, and, and I'll tell you, I grieve at the people who are weeping. I don't know the political repercussions. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. And you're not thinking about that right now. I'm trying to do the right thing. Follow my conscience, what is right for this country. And my view from the beginning is do what's right, stick to your principles, and the politics will work and out. And fade the heat. It just, if you're standing in front of people defending your principles, yep. in my experience, even if people disagree with you, they can respect it if you, if you are following what you believe. That's what I've tried to do every day in Washington. It's what I'm going to continue trying to do. Okay. Well, let's get you back to Washington since you helpfully provided that transition. So you're now back representing Texas as a United States Senator. You're dealing with the full complement of national issues and you're re-engaging locally. Let's talk about a couple of national issues, yeah. then let's come back to Texas. We've seen both Tulsa and Charlotte um, yeah. uh, 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 events this week, v very sad mm -hmm. and, and tragic events, uh, a pattern. These are not the only two events in which race and law enforcement have come into conflict in this country of late or really over the last couple of years. What is the right response? And, and should there be a response at the federal level? Is there a proper response at the local level? And how do we keep that from happening? Texas has six of the 20 largest cities in the country. It could very well be Dallas next. We've already had an incident in Dallas yeah. this year. Not of that sort exactly, but we could have San Antonio next. We could have Houston next. What, what, what do we do? You know, you, you use the word tragic, and that's right. Listen, any time an American is killed, in an interaction with law enforcement, it, it is unfortunate, it is tragic that someone lost his life. Uh, I am someone who has spent a lot of years working in law enforcement. And, and I believe that each of these cases, they need to work through our law enforcement system. We don't know exactly what has happened. I've watched the videos from both Tulsa and Charlotte. Those yeah. videos are disturbing. Right. The Tulsa but, situation seems a little bit more black and white a little bit more obvious what's going on, right? Well, it, it does, but even there, I mean, we have a legal system for a reason, yeah. to consider evidence, and even one perspective on a video, uh, if you look at a different perspective, something can be different. So we have- But the fact that there's action against that officer so quickly- So she has been criminally charged. Right, suggests- That, that suggests the prosecutor believes she committed criminal conduct, and, and the prosecutor will now uh, make their case in court with the evidence. And if, and, and if anyone commits criminal conduct, yep be they a civilian or, or a law enforcement officer, right. uh, the law should be upheld and they should be prosecuted. In Charlotte, as I understand it, the police department claimed the individual in question had a loaded firearm. We don't know if that's true or not, but it's a very different, right. it's a very different altercation if the individual has a loaded gun and, and if, if that individual is potentially pointing the loaded gun at officers. Officers have a right to defend their lives 
and to use lethal force to defend their life if someone is, is threatening their life. And citizens, it assumes then, the next part of that is citizens have a right not to have their lives threatened or taken if they're not doing anything that would, would justify that, right? Absolutely. Right. And, so and, how and, do we and, avoid, and, Senator, how do we avoid being back here next year on this stage having a conversation like this one? What do we do? Well, one of the things that I think has been unfortunate in the last several years is every time there's an incident, commentators in the media leap to vilify law enforcement officers, leap to accuse law enforcement officers of racism, leap to put things in the worst light. And, and I think that is wrong. I, I can tell you, as I've traveled Texas, over and over again, I try to stop and just thank cops. Thank you for standing up and risking your life to keep us safe. Now, in any population, there will be some bad actors. Do you have occasionally law enforcement officers who violate the law, who commit crimes? Yes, and if they do, they should be prosecuted. But I don't think vilifying cops is doing anyone a service, and I'll tell you who is being hurt the most by this vilification of cops. And it is minority communities, it's African-American communities. A lot more black lives have been lost because what we've seen in the past year is law enforcement officers are pulling back. They're scared to do their jobs because incident after incident that ends up on the front page everywhere. And what we're seeing is crime rates and murder rates rising and in some cases skyrocketing in inner cities. And, and sadly, the majority of those victims are African-American or Hispanic victims that, that are losing their lives to the rising homicide So rates. the black community is to blame? No. I, I actually started with the media. And listen, I understand the concerns, some legitimate concerns in the African-American community. You think the African-American community has legitimate grievances? I think they perceive... Well, that's... <laughs> go, go ahead, please. You think they perceive... I think that many members of the African-American community perceive that law enforcement does not treat them fairly. Do you believe that the law, law enforcement treats the black community fairly, yes or no? It's not a yes or no answer. In, in some cases, yes. You in some cases, no. In some cases, yes. In some cases, uh, no. It, it, th there is not one uniform law enforcement community. I can tell you there are thousands and thousands of police officers yes. who are black, who are white, who are Hispanic, who are Asian, who yeah. risk their lives every day in incredibly dangerous neighborhoods, dealing with gangs, dealing with drug dealers, dealing with people who are armed and very dangerous. Right. And the people they're protecting in many of these neighbors neighborhoods are predominantly minority. Right. And, and, and I think that is something we should say thank you right. for risking your lives to keep American citizens safe. The, uh, the presidential candidate you endorsed yesterday has come out in favor of a national stop and frisk policy as a way to deal with some of what we've seen this week. Do you support that? You know, I'm going to let Donald discuss his own policy ideas. Well, I'm asking you if you support it. I'm not asking you if he supports it. My view is that law enforcement particularly policing, is predominantly a local issue. Um, I can tell you, I was in Dallas for the funerals of the police officers who were murdered in Dallas. Yes, sir. And it was powerful seeing the community come together. I was in Houston for the funeral of Deputy Goforth, who was murdered at a gas station. It was powerful seeing the community come together. I think Policing is something that should be done primarily on the community level. There's obviously a federal role for dealing with terrorism and dealing with federal crimes, but I think the bulk of policing is a, is a local problem, and I think we need 
And we have a great many police leaders who are working to engage yep. the community, to work cooperatively with the community to stop criminals. But I think every time there is an incident in which there is a shooting, and you know what? When, when police officers are encountering violent criminals, there will be shootings. We know that for a fact. Now, not everyone they encounter is a violent criminal, but there are violent criminals. And if the reaction of the media every time there's a shooting is to blame the officers, that creates an environment where cops are afraid to do their jobs. And, and, and I think that is a profound disservice to this country, and it's leading to the growing violence we're seeing across this country. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the federal response to terrorism. Another item on the national agenda that you as one of 100 senators are certainly going to be asked to, to weigh in on uh, is what happened in New York and New Jersey yeah. uh, uh, over this last uh, week. Yes. Um, is there anything that we should be doing? Absolutely. More proactively or reactively uh, to prevent such things from happening? Yes. It, it is one of the most dismaying things of the last seven years. You know, a uh, couple of months ago, I chaired a hearing on the willful blindness of the Obama administration with regard to radical Islamic terrorism. I, I chair the oversight committee of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And we heard testimony from a whistleblower from the Department of Homeland Security who described how the Obama administration engaged in a purge, and purge was the word they used, where they deleted or modified over 800 DHS records to remove references to words like jihad or Muslim Brotherhood. I think that is incredibly dangerous. And there is a political correctness, a willful blindness that the Obama administration has, has followed and that Hillary Clinton, I think if she is president, her administration will follow, that is not looking at the warning signs and stopping terrorism before it occurs. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Okay. Let's take here in Texas, Nadal Hassan. Nadal Hassan in Fort Hood. The Obama administration knew that Nadal Hassan had been in communication with Anwar al-Awlaki, a known radical Islamic cleric. They knew that Nadal Hassan had asked al-Awlaki about the permissibility about waging jihad against his fellow soldiers and murdering his fellow soldiers. And yet the administration did nothing. And as you know, Hassan walked through Fort Hood murdering 14 innocent souls. Now, the question I have asked is, is why did we drop the ball? Those red flags, listen, if the administration knows someone is asking a radical Islamic cleric about waging jihad against his fellow soldiers, MPs should show up at his door and put him in handcuffs. So design, design, Senator, the system that would be in place if you were President Cruz, or design the system that you would advise President Trump to put into place instead. It is a system that is a clear-eyed and identifies warning signs and distinguishes between good guys and bad guys, based on evidence. So I'll give another example, the Boston bombing. The Tsarnaev brothers, we knew they were in contact with radical Islamic terrorists. Yep. The FBI went and interviewed them. And then the administration dropped the ball. They, they missed it when the elder Tsarnaev brother flew uh, overseas to meet with radical Islamic terrorists. They missed it when he posted on YouTube a public call to jihad. They missed it, and he set off pressure cooker bombs, murdering people at the Boston Marathon. The FBI wasn't monitoring him anymore. If you look at the Orlando terrorists there, the Orlando terrorists, there was red flag after red flag after red flag 
This was an individual who was telling his co-workers he sympathized with radical Islamic terrorists. And yet, they weren't monitoring him, and he murdered 50 people. So the order has to come down from the next president to do a better job of monitoring, to do a better job of figuring out in advance who is likeliest to commit these crimes. Yes, and, and what we can't engage in is, is the willful blindness of pretending. All right, coming out of the Orlando terror attack, as you remember, that terrorist called 911, and he pledged his allegiance to ISIS. He pledged his allegiance to al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. Yep. The Justice Department released that 911 call, and it edited out those portions. It literally just erased those portions, released everything but that. Yep. And then Loretta Lynch, the attorney general, said, we may never know why the Orlando terrorist did what he did. Well, they edited out his statement of why, and I think we need yep. a federal government that focuses radical Islamic terrorism. It is a political and theological extreme ideology that commands its adherents to murder or forcibly convert the infidels, by whom they, they mean everybody else, to wage jihad. And this administration, we keep having terror attacks. You look at this, this fellow in New Jersey and New York who had an overseas bride who had been repeatedly traveling to areas with very high concentration of terrorists, living there, coming back, and yet the administration is not looking for red flags because instead they're going through the records and deleting any reference to jihad or Muslim Brotherhood, and we keep failing to prevent these terror attacks. We need a federal government that stops them by not being willfully blind to the threats we face. Are, are you in favor of? Are you in favor of religious test? Again, is the uh, the candidate you support for president has been? I'm not sure if he is right here at the second, but he has been for a religious test. So I introduced legislation in the Senate that would put in place a three-year moratorium on refugees coming to America from countries where ISIS or Al-Qaeda control substantial territory. And the reason for that, look, the head of the FBI, James Comey, as you know, was appointed by Barack Obama. The head of the FBI told Congress, the FBI cannot vet these refugees to make sure that they're not terrorists. As he put it, he said, coming out of Syria, he said, we don't have the records on who are terrorists and who are not, so, so his words were, we can query the database till the cows come home. There's nothing there to find. Right. Th this is actually one of the reasons I came to the decision I did yesterday. Hillary Clinton has said she would continue Obama's plan to keep letting in tens of thousands of refugees from countries that are in largely under the control of ISIS and al-Qaeda when the FBI can't vet them. And when ISIS has said they're going to use the refugees to infiltrate us, to send people to yeah. wage jihad and murder us. We need a president who says enough is enough. No, we're not going to let people right. in who there's a substantial risk they may be terrorists. Now, Governor, Governor Abbott and state leaders over the last couple of days have, again, not for the first time, pushed back very hard on the idea of being made to accept refugees. Yeah. And the faith community, multiple faiths, responded aggressively in saying that, that this plan to not permit refugees to come to this state is out of sync with faith traditions that are so important to people's lives and in this country. Are you willing to tell people in the faith community that they're wrong and you're right on this? What I'm willing to say is we need a federal government that puts protecting American citizens first. And listen, 
What's happening in the Middle East is a humanitarian crisis. What's happening in Syria is tragic. I, I've gone, I visited a couple of years ago a hospital, the Ziv Hospital on the northern border of Israel, right, right by Syria, where at the time they had treated over a thousand Syrians yeah. who had come across the border wounded horribly in that civil war, and this hospital in Israel was treating them free of charge, giving millions of dollars of free medical care. It is a humanitarian crisis. Now, I can tell you America provides more funding and resourcing for taking care of those refugees than any other country on earth. And I, and I get a little tired when I see political leftists attacking America for refugees when we are the most generous country on the face of the planet dealing with humanitarian tragedies. I think for people who are refugees, we ought to be working to help resettle them in the Middle East and majority Muslim countries, but we shouldn't be risking the safety of American citizens when our law enforcement says we can't vet these refugees, that should be the end of the matter if we cannot determine if someone coming in is a terrorist or not. Let me give the audience a five-minute warning that we're going to go to questions in five minutes. We have microphones in the aisle. Please line up, and we'll come back to you and bring you into the conversation in a second. Senator, one of the things about being off the campaign trail mm -hmm. has been that you are re A few people have questions. Okay. Um, one of the things, Senator, about being off the, uh, the campaign trail is you've re-engaged in Texas, right? And you've spent a fair amount of time since you've been off the trail, since the convention, traveling around the state. Yes. I would say getting reacquainted with your constituents. Well, not that you were not acquainted before, but it's a different deal. Coming back home. Coming back home. What have you heard? What have you seen? What rises to the surface as the most important issue that you've heard over the course of your travels around the state? Well, I'll tell you, Texans are, are consistent in our priorities. I, I've spent a lot of time in the past several months traveling the state. I've right. been in East Texas, was in East Texas yesterday, in West Texas, down in the Valley, have been all across the state, just really listening, listening, doing a, uh, uh, in, in uh, Lubbock meeting with, with farmers in the agriculture community, down in uh, Laredo meeting with, uh, meeting with community leaders. It was yeah. striking there. Um, some of the sentiment, the, the consistent sentiment you hear over and over and over again is that the top priority of Texans is jobs and economic growth. And, and that is why, since I've been in, in the Senate, my number one priority from day one has been jobs and economic growth. Because, listen, at the end of the day, I work for 27 million Texans. I work for the men and women in this room. I work for the men and women across the state. And, and what Texans understand is that jobs, they don't come from Washington, they don't come from government. The reason people are coming to Texas from all over the country is we get, if you get government out of the way, if you allow small businesses to grow, if you lift taxes, if you lift regulations, the result is incredible economic growth, is rising wages, is greater opportunity. Right. And I hear that consistently across the state, that that is the number right. one priority of Texas. You know, uh, uh, Senator, because we've had the opportunity to sit down before, that I am obsessed with your relationship with Senator Cornyn. <laughs> Have you guys hugged it out since the, uh, since the election? Are you all getting along okay? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not much of a hugger. Um, Stipulated. Listen, John and I work together just fine. Yeah. Um, we have both worked together uh, on a number of matters. One matter that we worked together on that was important for Texas uh, was we were talking earlier about the Fort Hood shooting. Um, I was proud to introduce legislation to mandate that the soldiers 
killed by Nadal Hassan received the Purple Heart because right. the Obama administration refused to give it to them because they characterized that terror attack as workplace violence. And I, I was proud to get the support of Democrats and Republicans, worked closely with Senator Cornyn. We passed that into law. Right. And, and the Defense Department finally, five years later, awarded those Purple Hearts. Um, so, and, and you and Senator Cornyn of late have been working together to try to preserve the Senate majority, right? You've thrown in together on that. So, it's, it's, you're, you're working so well enough together. The, the two of us are right. working together. We, right. ha, we are bringing, bringing a number of senators to Texas. We're doing fundraisers for them in Houston, in, in Dallas, and six different Republican colleagues to try to hold on to the Republican majority. And, and John and I are working closely in that because right. I think if we're going to continue defending freedom and the Constitution, I think having a Senate with a majority leader, Chuck Schumer, is not helpful in that regard. Yeah. And so I'm going to do everything I can to help yeah. Republicans keep the majority. You're running again in 2018. Yes. Are you afraid of Mike McCall? No. Uh, look, my approach, I think every elected official should approach the job every day working hard to earn the votes of Texans. Right. Uh, you know, there's an old joke, there's two ways to run, scared or unopposed. Um, I very much, it is, the, it is the right, it is the responsibility of the men and women in this room and the men and yep. women across this state to hold us accountable, to hold us to our commitments. And so I can tell you this, you know, in 2012, we saw an incredible grassroots campaign where when we launched the campaign for Senate, no one thought we had a prayer. Right. Um, you know, I was running against a candidate who could self-finance, who put $30 million, ran blanket negative attack ads. Yep. And we ended up winning the primary by 14 points and winning the general by 16 points. And that was a testament to the grassroots activists across the state. And so my approach every day is, is that I have to earn the job that y'all have entrusted me with, right. and I'm going to keep working to do that, and it's ultimately up to the and, people and of Texas. And if he chooses to run, he uh, chooses to run. Anyone who chooses to run is welcome to do so, I would say, for any candidate. Right. I think it, it is the voters, then, who will hold them accountable. I will tell you this. I don't think Texans want a senator who will just go to Washington and roll over and go along to get along with leadership there. That, I think that, they is, want is, a senator is that who Mike, will stand up to Washington. Is that Mike McCall? Do you believe Mike McCall has gone along to get along? You know, that's a judgment the voters are going to have to make, but I'll tell you... Sounds like one voter just made it. Yeah, no. What I am saying is, is that when I travel the state of Texas, probably the most common thing I hear, and I hear this even from Democrats, yep. where people will pull me aside and they'll say, you know, I didn't vote for you, but you're doing what you said you would do. And I do think Texans want someone who understands right. as their senator that I work for you and not the Washington bosses, not the Democrats or the Republicans, but right. who stands up to Washington for Texans. That's what I've tried to do and that's what I'll continue to do. I get it. All right, so we're gonna do questions, one side, the other side, one side, the other side. We will probably run out of time before we can take everybody. I will do my best. Okay. Uh, okay. Ma'am. Hi, I'm Zoya. I'm a sophomore at UT and I'm also Pakistani-American Muslim. Mm -hmm. And I just want to know what you think uh, I can expect from a Trump presidency and if Muslims or how Muslims like me mm -hmm. can feel comfortable um, 
in a government that has out, outwardly been racist and or xenophobic to Muslims and other minorities. Do, uh, Senator, do Muslims have anything to fear from President Donald Trump? Well, thank you for your question. Um, listen, that's, that is a question you're going to have to ask yourself. You're going to have to assess. Well, Senator. You're going to have to assess. But she is asking you, but, but, Evan, every voter has to ask your conscience which candidate is going to keep this country safe, is going to defend our freedom. As I noted, I have had many disagreements with our nominee, and I have not been shy detailing those disagreements, some of which you read sitting here tonight. Right. What I'll say at the same time, the scourge of radical Islamic terrorism is dangerous, and many of the victims of it, as you know, are Muslim in the Muslim countries. Look, ISIS is murdering fellow Muslims along with murdering Christians, along with murdering Jews. And, and it is, we are seeing Muslim countries being torn apart by jihadism. Uh, my hope is that we have a president that helps bring people together to combat that, including in Muslim nations. That's the cooperation we need. I'll tell you, you know, I wrote a book a couple of years ago where um, I, I spent a fair amount of time praising the president of Egypt, General al-Sisi. And, and al-Sisi has been, I think, profoundly courageous, standing up to radical Islamic terrorism. He gave a speech at Cairo University calling out the jihadists and for a Muslim president of a Muslim nation to stand up and take on radical Islamic terrorism, he was literally putting a death warrant on his head. I mean, it was a, a degree of courage. It was lost on nobody that the people he was calling out would do everything they could to murder him for saying that. I hope we have a president who will work with leaders across the world, who will work to protect all Americans of every faith and to stop jihadism from murdering those who dare disagree with him. And you have confidence that Donald Trump is that person? Between the two choices of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, right. I believe Hillary would do a great deal of damage to this country. You are a straight shooter, but you still did not say yes. <laughs> Ma'am. Hello, Senator Cruz. Uh, with two young daughters, how can you in good conscience support a candidate that is so openly misogynistic? Listen, that's a question I have wrestled with. My girls were on the campaign trail with us. They traveled across the country with us. They bounced off the walls of the campaign bus. They have experienced this firsthand. And they're going to Google one day what he said about your wife, which to this day he has not deleted. Uh, and, and they know already. When, when, he, when he said that about Heidi, we sat down and talked to them about it. I mean, they went through this as an eight-year-old and five-year-old. Um, when I say I've wrestled over the last several months about what is the right thing to do, the question you ask was part of that analysis. At the same time, 
I want my daughters to have a country where they enjoy freedom of speech, where they enjoy the rights under the Bill of Rights, the religious liberty, the Second Amendment. If Hillary Clinton is elected president, we will see one, two, three, maybe four Supreme Court justices on the court. I think the court will be lost for a generation. And that means my daughter's rights will be lost for a generation. That was a major factor in thinking about that is Like if, the right to choice. Look, abortion is an issue which many people disagree in America. I can tell you I believe very strongly that every one of us has a right to life, and, and that right to life needs to be protected. And we can some other time have a discussion about this. This is an issue that, that, that Americans wrestle with. I can also tell you, even, even on the question of, of the right to life, that the views of Hillary Clinton on abortion are radical and extreme. Her views, she supports unlimited abortion on demand up until the moment of birth, including partial birth abortion, abortion with taxpayer funding. Those views, literally 9% of Americans agree with them, 91% don't. And to give one of the consequences of this, so another case that I... Uh, 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 let me just stop. Uh, Unlimited but, abortion on demand until the... Night. Hillary Clinton has not supported any restrictions on abortion whatsoever, and only 9% of Americans agree with that proposition. And let me give a specific manifestation of that. So when I was Solicitor General of Texas, one of the cases that, that we were involved in was defending the Federal Partial Birth Abortion Act. It was federal legislation that prohibited the gruesome act of partial birth abortion in very late terms where the child is partially born and, and, the, and then his or her life is taken while partially outside the womb. It is a horrible, horrible act. That went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld that legislation five to four. Antonin Scalia was one of those five. If Hillary Clinton is elected, I think it is a certainty that that decision will be overturned and that practically every restriction on abortion, whether it's parental notification, whether it's taxpayer funding, whether it is partial birth at the state levels, will be struck down. That strikes me as an egregious outcome and one that is not good for our country. You and I may disagree with that, and we have, as citizens, the right to disagree with that. But when I think of what's good for my daughters, I don't want to see that happen in the country my daughters are growing up. All right, let's go over here. We're gonna to try to get as many questions as we can, respecting everybody's point of view. Sir. Thank you. Um, Senator Cruz, um, do you agree with Donald Trump's assertion that Vladimir Putin's a stronger leader than President Obama, and why or why not? You understand that you're gonna spend the next two months answering for this guy. Look, I, right. I, I, I do understand that, and, and what I'm gonna say, and I can just preempt, because if we have six more questions like that, you're gonna get the same, same answers, which is I have no intention right. of defending everything that Donald Trump says and does. I have been very clear that I have significant disagreements with him. I don't think it is beneficial for me to outline those disagreements in the weeks before a general election when it is a binary choice. My views, I've answered that question at considerable detail. I don't think it is beneficial for me to be criticizing the nominee, and so if y'all invite me to do it, I will decline that invitation. Sir. 
Senator Cruz, my name is Varun Ukeri. I'm a freshman here at UT. Terrific. And just to provide a very short anecdote, I come from a Republican family. My parents voted for you in the Texas primary, mm -hmm. but this November, our entire family will be voting for Hillary Clinton this November. Because... Because we believe Donald Trump does not have the temperament and the understanding of policy issues to be an effective commander-in-chief. Now, you are a renowned debater at Princeton, and I'm sure you have the art of persuasion under um, quite well. So how would you persuade many Americans like my parents who are either voting right. for Hillary Clinton as Republicans or are undecided that Donald Trump is the right choice for them? Look, I, I understand the concerns you've raised. I have raised many of those concerns vociferously. The best suggestion I can give is what I tried to give at Cleveland, which is that I think every voter needs to follow your conscience. And for me, the test to ask is who will defend freedom and who will defend the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Um, I tried very hard for the answer to be something other than Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. That effort was not successful. You don't like Gary Johnson? <laughs> I, I don't know Gary Johnson. I mean, it's um, not, it, technically, I, it's I, not a binary choice. You actually have five choices, right? Well, and, and, and let me tell you how I thought about this, because, yeah. because I, actually, Evan, this was part of coming to the decision. I don't it's, make you as a Jill Stein voter, but you do have more choices. So right. as I thought about the options, I think each voter has five options. You can vote for Trump. You can vote for Hillary. You can vote for a third party. You can write someone in or you can simply not vote for the presidential race. I know people who've told me they're doing each of those five. Yep. As I wrestled with what to do, as I lay in bed at night trying to think, what should I do, as I talk with my wife, as I talk with my dad, I was clear I would not vote for Hillary. I'd said that from the beginning. That option was off the table. And part of what led me yesterday to say I was going to vote for Donald is I could not present a credible, coherent argument for any of the other three. I couldn't stand up. It's one of the, you know, if I were a private citizen, if I were just sort of living at home, I'd figure out what to do. I'd go vote and that would be it. But one of the responsibilities of, of representing Texans is I think it is a reasonable question for Texans to ask me, for whom did you vote? I think you have a right to ask me that. I could give the dodge of, oh, I'm not going to tell you, but I actually think the citizens have a right if I were going to vote for Hillary, I think the voters have a right to know that, and if they disagree with it, to act accordingly. Yeah. I could not give a coherent, credible, reasonable argument for the other three options, which left me as nothing more than a binary choice of Hillary versus Donald, and in that choice, but you I don't choose to you vote don't for the Republican But you don't begrudge this individual's parents for making the choice they made. I know that your parents, I know that you, I know that a great many people here are wrestling with this decision. This is a decision that I think has no precedent in American politics. And, and so I understand wrestling with this decision. I've tried to share how I've answered that question, but I think each voter has to answer that for yourself, consistent with your own conscience. So I'm being told that we're out of time. We have another session coming up on the stage with Governor Hickenlooper and Governor Hutchinson uh, uh, momentarily. Um, and I'm very sorry to disappoint the people who are lined up for questions, but I'm afraid we do not have any more time. Please give Senator Cruz a hand. Thank you very much for being here.